Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning to be our teacher and our guide, our instructor. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts, O Lord, with with knowledge of you afresh this morning. Teach us what these things mean, O Lord. Train us, O Lord, in the way of righteousness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think all of us have heard someone tell us that what we need is a relationship with God. I think everyone has heard this uh, probably many times. What we need is a relationship uh, with God. Uh, But the truth is, actually, every one of us already has a relationship with God. And we've been seeing this in Matthew, haven't we? Uh, The disciples, they have a beautiful relationship with Him. It's a relationship that's established uh, in deep love. And Christ's enemies, whether they realize it or not, uh, they also have a relationship with Christ. But it's not established in deep love. It's established in deep hatred. And the question here uh, really for us is not whether we have a relationship with God or not. The question here is, what is at the heart of that relationship? What is at the epicenter of that relationship? Now, as we near the end of chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, we see that the temperature of Jesus' enemies is rising, isn't it? And it's going to continue to rise as we continue to go through uh, Matthew's gospel. And if we look back to chapter 21, you know, we recall that his enemies challenged his authority. And Jesus responded to that challenge with three parables. And we looked at those parables uh, over the last few weeks. And when they have failed uh, to uh, challenge his authority, uh, they decide to take up another strategy. Uh, we're just going to trip him up in one of his talks. That's what we're going to do. And we found a really uh, interesting alliance a few weeks ago between uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who otherwise would have never been found together. Uh, 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 they found a common, uh, common thread between them. Their hatred for each other was kind of put aside because their hatred for Jesus was even greater than their hatred for each other. And they, uh, their intentions are to trip Jesus up in his talk. And we saw that they, they failed most miserably at it. The Sadducees are watching, so they said, well, we'll give it, we'll give it a go. Let's give it a go. And last week we studied uh, their attempt, and uh, they failed miserably as well, didn't they? And this week the Pharisees, they're feeling back like it's about time to get back in the ring, and they think they're going to try it again. And uh, that brings us to verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. See those words, they gathered together. It sounds hauntingly familiar. It sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Why do the nations rage and the kingdoms and the peoples plot in vain? They take counsel together. They gather together. 
Uh, we see Psalm 2 happening all over again. Uh, verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question in order to test him. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, again, uh, this was an important issue with these characters. Uh, they, uh, they used to sit around and spend a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, what's the great commandment? Which commandment is the great commandment? Which commandment is the most weighty of the commandments? Uh, what commandments are lighter than the weightier ones, if you will? What commandment do all of the other commandments hang on? And they would spend hours uh, discussing this. Unfortunately, much of this discussion took place in an ivory tower kind of fashion. You know, it was a, really a largely academic and scholarly enterprise that really didn't really have uh, obedience uh, with the heart as its aim. Uh, it was completely disconnected from the heart in many ways. And, and, and I think this will recall, you remember way back in chapter 5, uh, many of you weren't even here when we were way back in chapter 5, but back in chapter 5, I made a lot of noise about uh, chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus said uh, these words, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a very important verse in Matthew, a very pivotal verse. We see it has connections to the text that we come to this morning. Now, it is within this context, it is within this backdrop that uh, the question is asked of Jesus, what is the great commandment? And we see all eyes are intently upon him as he answers. He answers verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second, verse 39, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, the reader of the Old Testament will quickly realize that Jesus is not pulling all of this out of a vacuum, is he? He's not pulling it out of a vacuum. In fact, some of you probably know that he's, in his first commandment, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. Now, whether we know it or not this morning, you can be rest assured that the first century audience knew it quite well because this, it comes from a passage that's known as the Shema. If we were first century Jews, we would all have that passage memorized. It would be a passage that we probably would have began our day by by praying. And it's a passage we probably would have concluded today by praying. Now, the word Shema is simply the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In fact, if I read the whole passage to you, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Unquestionably, everybody knew these verses in Jesus' audience. The second commandment would have been also very clear and very, very, uh, very uh, uh, well-known, taken from Leviticus 19.18. Uh, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is taking these two commandments, and he's basically summarizing uh, the law and the prophets with these 
two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds, on these two commandments depend, or hang as some translations put it, uh, hang uh, all the law and the prophets. Now we need to be very careful with verse 40 here. It's a verse that needs to be handled with care. Jesus is not discarding the law and the prophets here. It would be easy to come to that conclusion that, okay, well, these, these two commandments, okay, that's good. We can, we can get that down. We can, we can memorize these two commandments and we can be out with the rest. We need to be very careful. That's not what Jesus is teaching us here. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't fall into a kind of all we need is love way of thinking here. You know, all we need is love. Ya-da-da-da-da, all we need is love. We want to be very careful we don't fall into that. That's, that, that makes for a great song, but it's, a, it's, a, it's silly nonsense. It's silly nonsense. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not discarding the law and the prophets. If we might use D.A. Carson's words, he says, it is not one system over another, but the priority of love within the law. The priority of love within the law. What's that mean? Well, if we might take an example, I used an example of stealing last week, I think it was, or the week before, I don't remember when. If we might use that example again, why don't we, why don't we steal? Well, uh, we don't steal because we, if we're going to follow this correctly, if we're going to obey this command correctly, we don't steal because we love God. And because we love God, we love each other. So we're not going to steal because we love God. Or we might put it another way, we're going to resist the temptation to steal because we love God. And because we love God, we love the other guy as well. We love one another. So it's not, Jesus is not doing away with all of these things. Uh, he's teaching us how to properly obey these things. Uh, that the love has priority in this. Uh, proper obedience to the laws uh, need to be... Uh, acted out in a spirit of love, love towards God and love towards one another. And I think some of you might even be thinking of this verse, John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We also see the priority of loving God here. Uh, the Apostle John, he concludes, uh, as he thinks about all these things, he says, he says these words, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And I share this with you because there is a priority here. The love of God is the priority. And it seems to me that as we begin to love God, all of these other things begin to fall into place. It doesn't happen overnight. It might not even happen really quickly. But it will happen as we begin to love God. Now, because of that, I'm going to spend the rest of the time on our message really focusing on the first commandment. Because as we get the first commandment down, as we, as we begin to love the Lord with our heart and our soul and our mind, uh, it's inevitable that we'll begin to love one another. And not just love one another. We might say, well, are, we already love one another. Yes, we do. But maybe not in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. 
We're talking about a divine love here. We're talking about a heavenly love here. Calvin said it's impossible for the love of God to reign without producing brotherly kindness. So let's look at this first commandment uh, for the remainder of this message. I'd like to look at it under really three categories, if you will. Uh, love towards, uh, the, the love of which Jesus speaks here that we're, that we're to direct towards God is first of all a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And it's a response to God. It's a response to God. And it's at the heart of our relationship with God. It's at the heart of our relationship with God. Let's take a look at all three of these things. Uh, the love that Jesus speaks about here is a gift from God. And, and I say this because uh, we can't rouse this up in our hearts. I, I make this the first point, and it's also the longest point. It's going to take a little more time to get through this one than the other two. Because I want us to be sure here that we don't go home trying to rouse this love up in our hearts of our own doing. Uh, this love is a gift from God. Now, so as many of you know, uh, a number of years ago, I used to do ministry out at Columbiana County Jail. I used to go out there every other weekend and do three services out there. And when I first started out there, I think I probably shared this story with some of you. When I first started out there, I mean, I wanted to have some kind of idea of where the folks that I was ministering to were. So I asked a simple question. How many of you have been saved by Christ? I was shocked by the answer that I got. Every hand went up in the room. Every single hand went straight up in the room. I'm like, oh, okay. There's something terribly wrong here. If all of these folks are in a state of grace, what are they doing in here? Something terribly wrong here. But I still wanted to know where they were. And it, it occurred to me pretty quick like that I'm going to have to find an alternative question here to find out where they were. So I asked, a sec I asked a different question. I said, okay, how many of you love Jesus? That's when the hands come down. That's when the hands fell down to the floor. How many of you love Jesus? There wasn't a single hand standing. I chose this question because of verses like this. First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And we're obviously talking about a different type of love because we all love somebody and we all love something. So there's a worldly love, if you will, a worldly kind of way of loving. But that's not what John is talking about, nor is it what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about heavenly love. He's talking about biblical love. Love is from God. What do we learn there? Well, it tells us where the source of this love is. This source is from God. It's a gift from God. And he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So he's telling us who it is that bears this love towards God. The person who bears this love towards God is the same person who has been born again, who's been born from above. And it's also the person who knows God. So the first thing that we need to understand is that this love does not come from ourselves. It's a gift from God. It's so important that we understand that. 
If we leave here today and we try to rouse this kind of thing up in our hearts and are uh, unattended by God's grace, uh, a terrible disservice is going to happen to each one of you try to do that. Uh, we need to be looking to the source of this love, who is God for this love. Unaided by God's grace, we do not love Him. It's as simple as that. I know that's an offensive thing to say, but it, is, it has to be said. We're not born into this world loving God, unattended by His grace. Some of us who have been converted in adulthood, like myself, can think back towards a former time. I didn't go around thinking every day, you know, I'm going to do something to God today. I'm really going to get Him. I didn't run around thinking like that. You want to know how I most of the time ran around? I ran around not giving Him a thought at all. The things of God weren't important to me. I was so caught up in my deal, in my things, caught up in, in what I wanted to do, how I wanted to lead my life. There was no room for God in that. I was expressing indifference towards God, and that's what we have. Every heart that's been untouched by God's grace, that is what's going on. We don't naturally love God. And we might think of our, our hearts even right now. Uh, if we're, if we're dreadly, dreadfully honest with ourselves, and please don't anybody sound anything out loud, just think to yourself, but be dreadfully honest to yourself. Where are you right now? What makes you tick? What gets you up in the morning? What does your life revolve around? Is it love for God? Or is it love for something God has given you? I think it has to be one or the other. I think there's only two options here. We either have God or we have something He's given us. Those are only two choices. We might ask ourselves this question, you know, uh, what would be worse news to you, the loss of your health or the loss of Christ? What would be worse news, the loss of all your possessions or the loss of Christ? These are questions I think we should ask ourselves. And here's a blow to self-righteousness. Jesus is summarizing all these laws with the law to love the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, our soul. That's the summary of the law, right? If we discover that we're failing to do that, then we also make a, a discovery that our failure is a conclusive and exhaustive and summary failure of everything, isn't it? I mean, if we fail at that, if that is the summary of the law, and we fail at that, then we fail at the whole thing, don't we? I mean, once them dominoes start going down, they go down pretty quickly, don't they? And they pick up speed as they go. Here's the good news. I probably thought I'd never get to the good news. It just kept getting worse, didn't it? Well, it does keep going. It, does, it just only does get worse if, unless we get the good news. It, it won't, it, it'll just continue to get worse unless we get the good news. The good news is Jesus is offering us radical love. Radical love. Not little sweet, little goosebumpy kind of things that happen from time to time. Radical love. 
Radical, life-changing love is what Jesus is offering us. And it's by faith in Christ that this love is given. That's the conduit upon which it travels. Just like the, the, the wires bring the power from the power company to the lights to turn those lights on, it is by faith that that love travels from heavens down into our hearts. Radical, real, heavenly love. Life-changing love. Our hearts can be changed from loving the things that God has given us, being madly passionate about the things that God has given us, to being madly passionate about God. Faith in Christ can change us from being madly passionate about our thing, our little thing we got going on here, to deserting that and becoming madly passionate with God. That's what Jesus is offering us. Now to accomplish this, something must change. And in fact, it's nothing short of a miracle, actually. I hope you all believe in miracles. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're a walking miracle. Because God has to change your heart. He literally, he's not going to rebuild that old heart. He's going to change your heart. He's going to give you another heart. That's what he says he's going to do in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. I'm not going to fix that old heart, that old rocky heart. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And somehow this new heart, you know, we got to connect the dots here. Somehow this new, this new heart that we're supposed to get has something to do with the death of Jesus. You know, I like to try to connect those dots because sometimes we assume that we're all connecting those dots. You know, you try to get in here and you try to figure this all out. Oh, I need a new heart. I need to be born again. Jesus died on the cross. He raised on the third. How does all of this connect? How does all of this work? Well, we're born into this into this world hating God. Our hate may be expressed in hostility as these enemies are treating Jesus. Our hate may simply just be expressed in indifference where we just, you know, Jesus, thank you very much. You stay over there, do whatever it is that you do. I'm going to be over here and do whatever it is I do and we're all going to get along in the garden just fine. Either way, that's how we come into this world. Something has to be done to change that disposition. But there's the problem of God's justice. We're rebels. We're, we're actually rebelling against God. We're kicking against God. What's Jesus do? Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to that cross. Why does he go to that cross? It's because of the sins that we're committing. Because of the sins that, the, that, that his people are, are committing. You know, John tells us that, you know, love knows no, other, no one than this that someone lays down his life for his friends. You've heard that verse before, right? Jesus lays down his life, but we were not his friends. We were actively rebelling against God, actively accumulating sins of which he had to suffer for in our place. That doesn't sound very friendly to me. Does that sound friendly to you? But what is accomplished on that cross? What takes place? God's justice is satisfied. The shame and the guilt are taken away. 
Now we're free to do what? We're free to be the objects of God's love. We're free. Uh, we're completely free for God to come into our lives, for the Holy Spirit to be poured into our hearts, as Romans 5.5 5 says. God is the source of this divine love. But for this divine love to find its way into our hearts, we have to be purified. That divine love is not just going to get poured down into these contaminated hearts. God's not going to do that with His love. He purifies us on the cross, gives us new hearts, so that love can flow down into our hearts. So that the Holy Spirit may reside in those hearts. So that we now may be in possession of this love. Now my next point will flesh this out just a little bit quicker. Love is a response to God. Love is a gift from God. He's the source of it. Don't look to yourself for it. He's the source of it. But this love that Jesus speaks is also a response to God. It's a response to God. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, The way to spread true love in the world is to teach the atonement of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I just got done talking about, isn't it? I, I believe these words with all my heart. The way to spread true love in the world is to teach the atonement of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. As we talk about Jesus dying on the cross in the place of sinners, we talk about the atonement. As we explain the atonement, as we explain how Jesus' death on the cross can actually cleanse us of our sins and make us right with God so that we're now free to run into His arms, that running into His arms is that response to His love. When the realization finally comes to us that, that Jesus is actually hanging on that cross for you and I, He's hanging there for me. When that realization, when those, when those scales fall off the eyes and, and those ears open and those eyes open to see that, you run to Jesus. That's what happens. And as you run to Jesus, you're now in possession of that love and you're responding. You're responding with that love, aren't you? Some of you have experienced it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe some of us are getting close to experiencing that and won't quite know, but you know, maybe you're on the pericope, maybe you're on the precipice of, of, of discovering this. And if you are, it is so exciting. It's so exciting. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. That's what John says, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us. Let's think that through for a minute. What would be so marvelous about us loving God? If we are in our right minds, we would love Him perfectly. Is there something unlovely about Him that we would choose not to love Him? If we were in our right minds, we would love Him perfectly with all our heart, mind, and soul. But the problem is we're not in our right minds. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us. It's quite amazing that He would love us, isn't it? We're so unlovely. We are so unlovely. And we get up in the morning and we try to make ourselves look as best as we can, but we really are unlovely. As we compare ourselves to the straight edge of God's perfection, we're quite unlovely, aren't we? So it's quite amazing that He would love us. Realization of that causes us to respond to this grace and, 
and this divine love, it's, it's a gift of God. It's also a response to God. It's a gift from God. It's a response to God. And lastly, love is at the heart of our relationship with God. Ministry exists because we love all the wrong things. That's why ministry exists. There'll be no ministry in heaven. There'll be no need for ministers in heaven. No need for preaching. No need for teaching. Uh, be, I'm, I'm going to be out of a job one of these days. And so will everyone else who's sharing the gospel. We're all going to be out of work. We're going to have to find something else to do. That's fine. God will have something else for us to do. But ministry exists because we love the wrong stuff. That's why ministry exists. Our, you know, we're madly in love with, with our thing while comparatively indifferent to God's. Now, I, I've learned not to base the success of my sermons on whether folks tell me they like it or not. When I first started out, I thought, if a few people tell me after the sermon's over they like it, then it was successful. There's a major flaw in that. I could get up here and tell you some stories that don't have anything to do with anything, and they could be interesting, and they could even make you laugh, and we could have a really good time. And I'm sure a lot of people say, man, that was a great message, Rich. Thank you very much. But was it successful? No. A sermon's only successful when it pries you away from loving the wrong things to begin loving the right things. This sermon is only going to be successful if it influences somebody or influences everybody to let go of our love for the things of this world to love God. That, that is what makes a sermon successful or unsuccessful. And you know something I've learned? Uh, sometimes when this is accomplished, sometimes when, when the Lord is tugging us away from the stuff, that, from our idols and from the things that we shouldn't be loving, sometimes when God is doing that, we like it. Our eyes are open and we're like, man, I can, I, yeah, I can see that now. Uh, I'm going to quit that. But very often, we don't like it. So very often, when the very best sermon is preached... No one is going to tell me they liked it. Because there's this little nagging voice that's left in your heart that's annoying you about some truth that you know is true, but you hate. I know this is true. I don't want to hear no more of this. You can shut it up right now. Thank you very much. And sometimes it's a very long time before God brings that nagging voice, before he, before he brings us full circle around to do away with whatever it is hindering us from loving him to a greater degree. That's ministry. Now, please, I'm not telling you all this stuff so you'll never tell me that uh, you enjoyed my message, okay? Uh, I do need to hear that once in a while. Even if you have to make it up, that would be fine to hear once in a while. But I think you understand what I'm talking about, right? Isn't that how ministry works? You sit under the message and, you, and all at once, out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit just nails you? Do we often react right away to that? I think oftentimes we kind of go crawling back to our homes, don't we? What was that all about? I don't know. Maybe I'd like it to go away. Well, it won't go away. Let's pray that it doesn't go away. That would be the worst thing that could happen is that it goes away. Let's take it to God. This is a crucial consideration here when it comes to 
love being at the heart of our relationship with God. As I said a couple of weeks ago, I mean, we can find ourselves in love with all kinds of things in the church. We can find ourselves in love with philanthropy. We can love just doing good things for people. We can find ourselves really just in love with each other, and we like this little fellowship that we have here, so we come because we like belonging to it. We can find ourselves loving teaching and preaching and doctrine and theology and the Bible and this and that and this and that and the covered dish dinners and this and that and this and that and the covered dish dinners and this and that and this and that and this and that. And at the end of the day, find ourselves completely devoid of love for God. So it's an important consideration. The love which Jesus speaks about here is a gift from God, isn't it? I hope I've shown that very clearly from Scripture. It's a response to God. Once our eyes open, we respond to Christ. We run into His arms. And it's the heart of our relationship with God. Why should we follow Him? If we're going to follow Him in a way that's pleasing to Him, we're going to follow Him because we love Him. Because He has won our hearts with His grace. And He is now the principle of our lives, the principle that, that dominates over all other principles. He's the, he's the fulcrum point of our lives. So in conclusion, I'm not going to ask anybody if you're saved this morning. The word saved is as common as it is poorly understood. Although I think most of you know better than that. Instead of asking you if you're saved this morning, I'm just going to ask you if you love God. Do you love Him? It's an important question, isn't it? Do you love me, Peter? Isn't that what Jesus asks Peter? Yes, Lord, I, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Put your name in there. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I pray that you will fill us, O oh Lord, with your love. And O oh Lord, I pray that we will respond to you afresh this morning and this day with that love. That you would fill us with your love by opening up our eyes to see you clearer that you would fill us with your love by opening up our eyes, O oh Lord, to see your magnificent beauty and your grace, to see Jesus in his splendor and majesty, that you would work in our hearts by way of your Holy Spirit, opening our hearts, opening our eyes that we see clearer, that we would respond to you afresh with this love and that this love would be growing and increasing and it would be at the very heart and fabric of our relationship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.